It's a pleasure to be here. It's good to see you again, Kristen. I met you many years ago at a networking event when I lived up in the Puget Sound area. And I love to see those ripples through time of the connections that we make that are meaningful. And for myself, I mean, what a journey life is, you know, it's a river and sometimes the river gets changed by the weather outside and the storms and it bends around this way to go with the flow of the earth and sometimes we get stuck in little eddies, but I can say that I've been professionally in the healing field for the last 28 years and my interest in healing began at least 50 years ago as a teenager. And so right now I'm working with yoga, yoga therapy, which it's really its own little niche also, working with meditation, with prenatal yoga, with hypnobirthing, which is a big part of my life, and with sacred dance. I also wrap a medical device, Beamer. And so I like to look at the whole package of what does it take to come into our own. One of my taglines on my signature is dedicated to assisting individuals in finding their own tools of empowerment, their own tools of healing. Mm. Yeah, I'm so grateful that we did meet and that we've stayed in touch. So what's bringing you joy these days? In a more immediate sense, summer, you know, I think it's been a long, hard winter uh, for many people because of the pandemic. And despite the vulnerability or challenges of the heat wave, I love warmth. I lived in Maui for 21 years. That's already 22 years ago, although I have visited quite often, but I, swimming in lakes and rivers, and I just got myself a little kayak. So I'm finding a lot of joy in communing with nature and water more. It's like I almost can think clearer when I'm underwater. It's my part mermaid. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. A favorite hobby, I think, in the Pacific Northwest, even more so. I think people are looking for ways to get out on the water and to be in nature, like you said. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your personal journey and wherever you want to begin sharing and a little bit about what's happened along the way. You know, I guess I want to begin somewhere around teenagehood. I had a mother that was in and out of the hospital and had a lot of health challenges ever since I could remember. And I started learning about herbs and natural healing as a teenager. And I was introduced to yoga at a young age at 16. It was just when it was coming over in the 60s. And so I would say that's kind of the beginning of my interest in more complementary ways of healing. I highly respect Western medicine and feel that we've got fantastic diagnostic tools and there's so much that it's contributed, but the whole that's left is that complementary healing. You know, we're more than just the scientific 
counting of the cells and the blood and what's the blood pressure doing. It's what's our lifestyle about. So I would start there. And then as I was cultivating, you know, what, where do I want to go in life? What do I want to do? I mean, I had done many different things. I worked with crafts for a while and doing crafts fairs. I lived off the grid in the mountains for a while. I moved to Maui. I was a farmer for a while. And then I was even working in the restaurant industry for a little while. And I felt like, no, this isn't quite doing it. And that was when I started doing a lot more yoga and realizing that, oh, I can also be in the healing field. And I went back for my degree in psychology as a single parent in my 30s. And I got um, into the domestic violence field as a counselor in domestic violence. And that was, you know, it was a bit challenging, but then I started getting invitations to teach yoga. I was teaching in Europe with a friend for about eight summers and then felt that it was time for my move from Maui to the Seattle area to open up my practice a lot more. And at that point, that's, you know, the bulk of my adult life. I was teaching at a women's addiction recovery center three days a week, doing yoga, yoga therapy. I kind of group that together. I was teaching at Overlake Hospital at Evergreen Hospital, teaching prenatal yoga and doing a lot of privates. And then I was introduced to the Beamer, it's a medical device working with a frequency that helps open our blood flow. And I felt like after all these years of eating well and doing yoga, I shouldn't have this arthritic pain in my hands. I don't believe in hereditary. I have some concepts going on, but the Beamer really helped me. So I added that in my practice and the sacred dance. I'd been doing that for, gosh, probably 30 years. It started on Maui and I was asked by my teacher to start teaching groups. So I've added that in. That's been about 11 years that I've been also working with sacred dance and I've done meditation trainings. I've taught meditation classes in assisted living facilities and corporate environments, privately in yoga classes at yoga studios. So you know, that's kind of a broad thing. And I, I've moved about four years ago and I've slowed down my public practice a little bit more. I've been tending more towards privates with hypnobirthing, you know, rather than group classes. I really find that when I can support people individually, it's so helpful for them. And I see that it's so heartbreaking to me when I moved here, uh, after being in what I would call a village setting with most women having their babies at home, I had my baby at home and I moved and was teaching prenatal yoga and seeing all these women half my age having so much trepidation and concerns and thinking if they didn't get the right stroller or car seat, you know, they were a bad mother and I felt like, wow, I really need to contribute something here. And that brought me into the hypnobirthing, learning hypnosis, working more with people with hypnosis. So I've amped up more on, I would say, adding in the spiritual component, you know, working with meditation, working with sacred dance. And 
really listening to people where they are to help them flower into who they truly are to be as authentic as possible. And I see that global shift certainly getting instigated more by the pandemic where so much more was available to us online and people speaking out, you know, the Me Too movement, the racial injustice, the economic inequalities, you know, how and how are women taking their role in helping to support and bond with each other to feel our innate beauty, no matter what age or stage of life that we're in. Wow, such a rich experience and so many different ways to weave in healing and embodiment. I was thinking about how you were saying that you were, you really felt connected to a village. And was that when your son was born? Is that what you were referring to? Yes. When mm -hmm. I, before I moved to Maui, I was living in the hills of California Northern California. And we had created a natural foods co-op and an organic bakery. This was back in the 70s, so it was still kind of new. And I lived in a community. So I felt that village connection at first there. And then I moved to Maui and again, felt it. We were more like the black sheep of the family that all gathered, you know, to wanting a different lifestyle, living off the land, living a little closer to the land. And that's where I had my child. And certainly we bonded together. I mean, it was very common to have a list at a baby shower of Who's going to come the first day after you give birth? Who's going to come the second day and do the laundry? Who's going to come the third day and, you know, make sure the fridge is stocked? You know, all of that support was available to me. And then when my son was about two years old, this was the Chinese year of the ox, in case people are interested in Chinese astrology also. But one of my friends whose grandchild was being born in that year, there was about 12 of us. And this elder woman had started alternative schools when she was younger. And she's like, let's do a preschool. And so there was about 12 of us that formed together. We, she, this woman, Liz Wertheim, I really want to acknowledge her, bless her heart. She's 91 now and still giving amazing advice and guidance on parenting. And she was my mentor and she offered one of the buildings on her property out in the jungle, so to speak. And we took turns being there four days a week. You know, it's like my house is your house. The kids played together. They're like family. They still keep in touch, some of them. And then at one point, one of the moms stepped up to be the main teacher and the parents would just assist for a little bit. And then that lasted from when the kids were two till about seven. And at that point, a lot of the kids were going off into other school situations. And I was fine with that school, but there was two boys left, my son and this other little boy, and then three girls and the girls mutinied. They wanted to go to a real school. So the co-op disbanded. And that's when I sent my son to a Waldorf inspired school. And again, I think it's island life because I've noticed this up in the San Juan Islands or even Bashan Island. 
You know, when you're in that smaller space, you do know more of the people around and you do band together more as that village. Oh, what a beautiful memory of childhood for your son. <laughs> I I think you're right about certainly geographic, you know, if you're on an island, there's maybe more of an intimacy. People know each other, you see each other. And whenever there's a celebration or a crisis, you come together in a way that maybe doesn't happen, you know, in larger neighborhoods or in larger spaces. And it's interesting that you mentioned Vashon because I I know a woman who started an alternative school in Vashon and I myself have started alternative schools. So Mm -hmm. some parents are looking for the collaborative co-op type environment and they trust that their child will develop the skills that they need and just by participating and showing up for life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great to hear that you were also a part of that. And one of my friends had shared, it's usually the people that you bond with when you have kids and you're raising kids that will carry on in friendships. So yeah, there's all the different stages of life you know, and the different things that bring us together. And I think people are realizing more what community is, and that can be the benefit of technology and the internet that we're able to band more in groups, you know, with child raising, with birthing, with parenting, with how do we come together and share our strengths. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that there was an auntie who, um, who was a mentor for you, and also that the, it was common practice that people would just come up with the postpartum plan almost organically, like they already recognized and anticipated the needs about maybe some household chores, some meals, some caretaking. Can you talk a little bit more about how you think that supported the mother's health and if you received that? Oh my goodness, a hundred percent. And I love ritual and I wanted to translate some of those rituals here. What one tool is with the baby shower, you know, we lived more of what I would say kind of traditional lifestyles, like all traditional cultures would do this. They would honor the woman. They would see that she's taken care of. So we pulled from these other cultures to make it our own. And one of the beautiful rituals that I was able to add to a baby shower at the Women's Addiction Recovery Center, which was, you know, people aren't going to be doing om and chanting, although that was a beautiful part of one of our ceremonies was the woman would just lay on her back and everybody would put their hands on her belly and chant om to feel that connection. But the other more I would say inclusive that anybody can feel comfortable with, I would hope, is we would have everybody in a circle. The woman, the pregnant woman would put her feet in a warm bath of flowered essence water, you know, and each woman in the circle would go around and massage her feet and wish her well for the birth, for her life, you know, and that was just so empowering. That ritual, I feel, can translate, but, you know, it's true. Some people aren't comfortable taking their shoes off at the door. That was just something we did forever, living in a muddy place. You know, you just do that. But the other thing that I shared at the um, recovery center was to just light 
a tea light, you know, and it doesn't even have to be a flame anymore because that's not even allowed if you go to the hospital, but take one of these battery driven tea lights and each woman has the light on and shares something for the mom and the baby or the mom or the baby. And then the pregnant woman holds that, turns off the light. And when she's in labor, she turns that on again. So she can really tune into everybody's prayers of well wishes. The first time we did that at my neighbor's birth, it was actually, it was a big tray, you know, like a, a food tray with all these candles, the little tea light candles that she lit. I think it was even before tea lights, you know, so we didn't even have the metal container and the wax dripped all over the counter <laughs> that it was on, but she had an amazing birth. You know, it was a VBAC, vaginal birth after C-section, three years after her first child was born. And it was a nine and a quarter pound baby that she had on her living room floor. And she was very determined that this was the birth she wanted, even though a couple of midwives were like, I don't think we can work with this. And the midwife that was at her birth, uh, my friend was just in, you sometimes in a very hypersensitive space when you're pregnant, when you're in labor, especially. And she was just like, I don't like the way she smells. I don't want her here. And I was there as, you know, now they coined the term doula. So I was there as her friend, as assistant. And at one point I walked over to the midwife who I had known as a very capable midwife. She was in the other room and she goes, smell me do I smell bad or you know and I'm like sniffing and smelling her breath and her hair I'm like no I like the smell of your shampoo your breath is fine whatever reason you know so yeah I guess I can go off on ritual or feeling supported and yes I do feel that helps the the woman's health mm -hmm. to feel that she has other people to connect with and I know the hospitals and many areas are trying to take that place. You know, the PEPS group, early parenting support, I don't see it as much here in the Portland metro area, but I did see it more up in the Puget Sound area. But any way that women can come together with who they've been in birthing classes with, I think it's a beautiful thing. You know, there's meetup groups now that maybe that will help bring women together because, mm -hmm. you know, it's not going to be anybody other than a new parent that will be excited about the color of baby poop. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. It's so interesting how we, you know, traverse the globe and we move around as humans. I actually originally lived in Portland and I go back frequently because I still have family there. But I remember actually leaving Portland pregnant, coming to the Seattle area because my husband had a job offer and I didn't really have a community. I didn't have, you know, um, maternity care lined up. I just wasn't sure what my plan was going to be. And so, but you're right the excitement and the bonding and the sisterhood that happens around birth. I don't know that there's anything that can rival that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's monumental mm -hmm. and it leaves an impression and it's beautiful to find the circles that we can share around that. Mm -hmm. So um, 
Would you be willing to share some of your challenges or powerful things that you've experienced, whether it was witnessing births or, you know, other challenges that you've seen parents work through? I mean, my own personal challenges might be um, that I did grow up with uh, domestic violence and I didn't even hear that term until I was maybe 35 in therapy, you know, after, you know, being, becoming a single parent going into therapy. And I was like, oh, so it helped me learn about trauma and also how those traumas can come out during birthing. And I know I had a very long labor, although in those days, you know, 36 years ago, I was told birth average was first birth was about 24 hours. And why do they say now that average is about 12 hours, but women think that's too long. So looking at the bigger picture, you know, I guess it's called medical anthropology, but my birth was challenging that, and that was my biggest gift of learning about hypnobirthing is working with fear release because I had an intuition in my labor that I would not be with the father of my child for, uh, it, it didn't feel like a long commitment, even though I wanted it to be. And I remember saying to him, it's like, just tell me you'll stay, even though there was a part of me that knew he wasn't going to. So I did have a long labor and I, I was very grateful for the midwives that didn't tell me that I was closing down from five centimeters to three centimeters after 12 hours of labor. They didn't say that. She just said, I think that if I give you a calcium ringer, you know, an IV, you'll be more hydrated, you'll, your muscles will relax. And at that point, she also didn't tell me or my old friend who was an assistant midwife that was there that she put some Pitocin in the IV drip. It really wasn't legal then, you know, and I won't mention names, but she kind of borrowed it indefinitely from the hospital she worked at. I went from three centimeters to 10 centimeters in an hour. And that was when the book Spiritual Midwifery by Ina Mae Gaskin, she, that was like my Bible when I was pregnant. And I was like, oh, I guess this is what they mean when it gets psychedelic. It's like riding rapids water. You're just, you want to live. You're just on the rapids. And yet it was such an expanded state of mind of trust. I felt like I was hovering in this luminous place between life and death. And I was fine with either way. It was just like, just stay in the boat, one breath after another. I was glad that I had the yoga breathing. I was glad that I had been at other natural births in the home and heard of so many stories. So that, that I would say was the most challenging. And then, you know, being a single parent, it really brought some empathy. And although I can't say I lived with what I would call intense domestic violence, you know, there was there was a little bit of it enough to say, this is not right, you leave. And now I have the experience of what happens with women when they're caught in that cycle. And that was when I went to get my degree in uh, psychology. And there's been a lot of, I guess, pulling myself up from the bootstraps and really grateful that I was able to do that. It's like 
wonderful to have support of community and others that have traveled the path before you. And ultimately it's our own individual decision that, yeah, I want something more for myself. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. I heard you say, you had the expression even during labor, it was like riding the rapids. And I think it's a hundred percent true that you can learn and be surrounded by other people um, in loving and kind and supportive ways, but you do have to navigate and row your own boat. And, and some people just have way more challenges that are put in front of them and, and less resources. So it sounds like you've developed a lot of skills that you can share along the way with others. Well, this is what happened with the prenatal yoga. So I was teaching at a yoga studio and the prenatal teacher left. Now, when I was pregnant, they didn't have categories of level one, level two, prenatal. It was just everybody in the same room. And that was the skill you learned. But nevertheless, here it was in Issaquah and the woman, the teacher left and the owner of the studio said, you know, I wasn't really comfortable with my pregnancy and I don't want to teach this. And I was like, oh, I loved being pregnant. I want to teach this. And so I was able to meet a lot of women and see what their needs are. And I was told about hypnobirthing. And at first I had this misperception of well, who would want to be checked out during labor? Like I thought of hypnobirth, hypnosis as something different. But then one of my friends insisted that I learn it. She was in California. And I talked to a few midwives, one woman in particular in Port Angeles, who'd been a midwife for 25 years, worked in a hospital. And she goes, we have not seen anything like it in 25 years. And we teach it here at the hospital. So Myself, I really like tradition. I don't want to like reinvent the wheel. And what I loved about finding the hypnobirthing course is that it took a lot of those tools that were innate in my community and what we did for each other. And it helped kind of organize it in ways that women could work with that for their own self. And what's more traditional these days is that the father of the baby is at the birth or in many instances, you know, it was a sister, a friend, a mother, but what are the actual tools? What is the thread of using the breath? So we find our empowerment. How do we work with hypnosis to just zoom in on that deeply relaxed place where our bodies know how to birth, just like animals. And Ina Mae Gaskin, she's just an icon in the field of birthing. And when I first met her, it wasn't until, I don't know, it must somewhere in the 2000s, she was helping to open a birth center in Seattle, Center for Birthing or something. And I first met her and shared with her, you know, my long history of parallel kind of uh, excursions into complementary healing. And she goes, you know, we need to keep teaching these tools, otherwise people will forget how to give birth. So although it's innate to mammal bodies, we need the tools to bridge how to go into those innate knowingness of embodied mammal life. You mm. know, the intelligence of our human creativity. Mm -hmm. It's like a, a remembrance practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. to tap back into this primor primordial knowing and way of being. But we're, I mean, in modern life, most of us are 
fairly disconnected from our body and we live in a culture that's very cognitive um, oriented. Yeah, you know, and I want to share also that it's not about whether you birth your baby at home or in the hospital or a birthing center or out in the jungle or it's a C-section. It's really, who are you? You're inviting this soul, this being into your family. And that's what we want to support you as the container. So I've had women who've needed C-sections. There's a big gray area where I feel that learning the tools of birthing can help decide, is this really medically necessary? But there are medical necessities for C-sections and thank goodness we have that Western medicine. And still women have felt incredibly empowered because they were able to stay with their self, their breath, their knowingness of who they are. And I think that's what's most important. And that translates to the baby. You know, we can have science that's now discovering that the prenatal environment, they feel the hormones, there's epigenetics and all of that. So the more we can come into our own strength, work with whatever kind of deficiency or pains or traumas that we've had in the past to the extent that we feel comfortable with, the more that we're able to pass that on to our children. And I do feel that it's so genetic that we just, we love these babies that come through. Even women that give their babies up for adoption, you know, they do that out of, I might not be the one, you know, that can raise my child, but there's that very human caring that can happen. And yes, we can, you know, label it scientifically. Well, it's that oxytocin going on and all of that's valuable. You know, we want that intellectual understanding, but I find that I, I like that to be in the service of what is our basic humanness. Hmm. It's such a, for some people, it can be such a terrifying, um, enlightening experience. I mean, all of it, it can be so powerful. I heard you say that at one point during your birth process, you even recognized that, I mean, like there was death somehow in the background, but that you were passing through something. So, and I don't think we talk enough about that it's not just a baby being born, a mother is being born in that process. Yes. Yes, people do die in childbirth. They certainly do. But also part of the identity of who I was before children and now who am I becoming? It is a becoming process, yeah? Oh, absolutely. I love that you shared that. I have an old friend who we did the preschool on Maui with. She wound up moving to Bali, Robin Lim of Bumi Sahat in Bali, who opened a free women's birthing clinic. And she was sharing once that some midwives were saying, well, do you like working with brand new moms in labor or second moms, you know, second or third babies? And she said, I love working with first time moms because I see them being born. And it's true, our culture is a little death averse. I love talking about death because there are little deaths. You know, the French call that orgasm. <laughs> and, and then there's, you know, leaving go of the maiden to become the mother, you know, and then in menopause, we become the crone. So there's always change. And for myself, 
I had my child when I was 29 and in my 20s, I felt like I was leading a very spiritual life. It was a very, very strong focus in my life, but it wasn't until I had a child. And in those first few months, it was like, oh, this is what they mean by surrender. Oh, this is what they mean by unconditional love. Oh, this is what they mean by service. It's like, what are the universal qualities of all spiritual paths with whatever name we call it, whether it's religion or, you know, whatever it is, it's how do we find that kindness? And I feel that it's beautiful that mothers can learn that. And I also really honor and respect that it's very challenging for a lot of young women these days because they're expected to also work 40 hours a week or not even expected to, they need to financially. So I lived very simply. I did choose a life of poverty, so to speak, you know, which I had a lot to make up for as my child grew, like a lot to catch up with, but I don't regret one instant of it. You know, I wanted to be able to just be there fully for my child. And there is some movement politically to really honor parenting. And when I was teaching yoga in Europe, I was learning how in Germany, even if you have are a married couple and you both have good incomes, a woman can take off for five years and get some stipend. Actually, it was two years and get a stipend. But then there were companies that would let you take a leave of absence for five years and give you yearly training. And they, you know, so it's like I will often advocate in some of my classes, you know, to say to women, this is your choice. You know, how do we do family leave? What is the company offering to you? Now we do have some paternity leave. So I think that interdependence, which yesterday always reminds me of, it's not just independence, it's interdependence. How does politics come into parenting, come into support for families and children? And, you know, I'm sure there'll be women listening on this podcast who've never had children, you know, and we love the aunties and the grandmothers and it takes a village, you know, and I've seen you know, one midwife I knew never had children and she was able to 100% be there for all the people she worked with. So we need all of us to come into that sense of grounded kindness. You know, how does that kindness show up? You know, bringing a neighbor food when they just give birth. You know, even if you don't know them very well, it takes, you know, a little bit to just make double the recipe and just offer a casserole. So true. Yeah. And, and raise some, continue to raise beautiful trouble in society because the people that are in most need of that support will be in double duty if they're having to advocate for themselves and sometimes you're just exhausted and you don't even know what questions to ask. And it's, it's a very vulnerable situation to recognize your interdependence and to receive help. I think some, for some people that's tricky to even ask for it and to receive it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a shift that I'm seeing in the culture these days of people being more real with 
yeah, I'm kind of exhausted. I need some help here. You know, we don't often live near our blood family or some of us that do don't even relate to them. So finding what ways to nurture and support our own being is really giving to everyone else around you. And that's mm -hmm. so important. Yeah, and like you said, even if you're not a parent, recognizing that if your coworker's exhausted and depleted, it's gonna affect the whole team, it's gonna affect the whole company. And as a society, the bigger vision of caring for everyone, but especially people that are experiencing a vulnerable time, a sacred time, whether it's a death or a birth or some kind of loss, you know, it's we need each other and we need to continue to ask for policies, caring economy policies, whether it's, you know, state legislation or federal legislation or company policy, neighborhood <laughs> agreements. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Again, finding that interdependence of how do we support ourselves? How do we support others? And I know for myself, one of those self-care is meditation and yoga. That's what's carried me through. And I know when I first had a baby, it was like none of that, you know, could come in the picture. But then because it was so in my body already, I remember after about three weeks, I sort of rolled out of bed and did a few what I call my bread and butter yoga poses to just loosen up my spine, you know, and, and just feel my center and then starting to carve out a little bit of time in my day to do that. And sometimes I remember my toddler, you know, I'd be doing bridge pose and yoga, like where my, you know, low back is off the floor, my torso is off the floor, and he would try to like crawl under, you know, and if that's all the time I can get, it was great. But it influenced him too. And I never knew that until he was, what was it? Probably 25 or something. And he was visiting at a friend's house who was doing yoga. And he was like, no, 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 David, you should do it this way. Look at what you're doing in your neck, you know? And I was like, somehow it registered there. Mm -hmm. So whatever it is. And I tell women, it could be just going into the bathroom with your favorite book and locking the door for 15 minutes, maybe even putting earplugs on. But again, I, I had good mentors and, you know, my friend Liz, who is a grandmother already, and she would say, whatever we could do to empower ourselves, that is teaching our children to be in their center, to find their boundaries also. You know, it's like we, worked with the principle a lot of we're in this together, we're a team, and yet I'm the parent, I will guide you, but we're here together. It's not us against them, or, you know, you got to follow my rules or you're out, but it's like, you know, social emotional learning, for instance, so much more in mainstream. And I had been volunteering in my grandson's school since he was in third grade. Now he just graduated fifth grade and I've been teaching yoga and mindfulness and it started in third grade. And I just, you know, it was just because the teacher said, I said, what do you need? You know, I could help with reading or I want to be around kids more and that village mm -hmm. quality. And she's like, well, what do you do for a living? I was like, well, meditate and, you know, teach yoga and meditation. It's like, we'll do that. And I was really surprised at the end of the year, how many of these 
eight-year-olds were saying how valuable it was for them, how they stopped being stressful. And now, you know, it's three years later, many, many more schools are adding this in and adding in social emotional learning. So each little pebble in the lake is sending out these ripples into our culture. Mm, what a beautiful offering. And those kids that are learning how to self-regulate, they go home and they share that with their parents and then they're co-regulating and vice versa. So whether it's the adult that's learning these techniques and practicing or, or the child, I think uh, it's a great, great way to introduce it in school settings and at home. Yeah, I'm 65 now, 65 and a half, I guess. And I'm proud to say that because I've had too many friends who left their bodies way sooner. And I want to really honor age and wisdom again all traditional cultures will do that. And so in the communities that I've connected with, and I want to share in particular the sacred dance, the Taradatu, we would have annual retreats. And many years ago, one of the leaders in the group, her mom would often come to retreat. And so we did a crone ceremony in the group that she led. And she shared that you know, and I think it was anyone who had already lost their periods, you know, that was considered crone. And even if you had a hysterectomy, you know, and you felt that you were in that category, that was fine. And she shared that it was human mammals were the only species, female mammals were the only species that lived much longer after their menses stopped than any other species. And that's so that the elders can pass the wisdom on to the next generation. So we listened to the elders and their advice of a lifetime. We massaged their feet and we served them a meal. And that was so beautiful. And then when I was visiting Maui a couple of years ago, my dear Lizworthheim mentor had been part of something called the double circle. And a younger woman, I guess now she turned 40, but she started it in her 30s. The double circle was the elders, women, you know, past menopause on the inner circle, or it doesn't matter, inner outer. And then there was, yeah, because we switched places. And then there was another circle of all the younger women. So they would listen to the elders. It would be a topic that was formed. Then they would switch the circles and listen to the younger women. And the younger women would make a potluck meal that the elders can, they didn't make a meal and they shared it. And so there are people coming into this place of what that means. So I had elders, like for instance, I guess I was in my forties and my friend's French grandmother, well, it was her mother-in-law was saying, you know, she goes, I don't know all this stuff about menopause. You know, one day I stopped bleeding, that was it and it was fine. And I thought, well, I'm gonna be like that. But the truth was, perimenopause started and I thought I was going crazy. <laughs> so I had a friend who said, you know, acupuncture could really help. And I sought out someone who really had a lot of experience. I was 43. I worked with Chinese herbs and acupuncture for about nine years. So I didn't lose my periods early. I felt that it was more natural. And then I lost it at 54. And I felt that the perimenopause years can be very valuable in, again, there's the death of the maiden, the mother, you know, the, 
the big energy out in the world and how do we start nurturing ourselves in a different space so i've I've appreciated this time of life and I do sit in circles with people who are older and appreciate listening to elders and guess, you know, I once talked to my son who's mixed race and he said, well, you know, it's hard to talk to you about, you know, racial issues sometimes. And it's like, how could you fully understand? And I'm like, yeah, it's like me trying to talk to you about ageism, which I didn't understand until this age. But, you know, whatever our circumstances in life, how we find our own truth and empower ourselves is what's contributing to the whole. Mm. Yeah, and I think that there's a different kind of understanding that actually happens in the heart space. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know the intellectual exercise, but connecting at a heart level, whatever is shared, whenever one's, when anyone speaks their truth and someone is there to listen and to witness and to hold space, I think that there's a lot more connection points. Yeah, I would say one of the fruits, I like to call it harvesting. I've heard that in various retreats. I've loved to do retreats. I've loved teaching at retreats receiving them, but how do we harvest the fruits of our life? And in truth, at any age, we can do that, but we have a bigger tree as we age. And to focus on what have we harvested is so valuable. And learning how to listen, listening to ourselves is the first thing. You know, now in the yoga world, we all talk about interoception. Yoga is not just some fancy gymnastics, which maybe in some mainstream circles it looks like, but how do we really listen in? And when we can do that with ourselves, it's easier to stay present and really listen to another. I love the image that you gave about harvesting the fruits. And immediately I started thinking about as you said, an older person, the root system, the groundedness, the connection at a deeper level. I think that that's one of the reasons why I've always been attracted towards having older people around me, because I know that they have wisdom and that they have practiced self-trust and their self-trust and their uh, knowingness is reassuring even if it's not a verbal reassurance it's just their beingness that feels different than being with peers that are kind of struggling mm -hmm. that's beautiful that you bring up just their beingness because mm -hmm. i felt that too and now we do have neuroscience and i loved being able to learn that but one of the teachers is doing this study because i used to think well, how'd that teacher get so popular? They're using the same poses as this one, but it's who we are and our beingness that can influence others to go deeper. Yeah, I, I feel more empowered and authentic to say, I am doing this, 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 and this, because I when I first moved down to Vancouver and I was doing all these different networking groups and one of the women who's a coach scooped me up and she's like, no, you've got to focus on one thing so people know where to land. I'm like, it just didn't feel right. It was like trying to fit into a pair of shoes. It's not me. So I, you can find me at phyllismoses.com. That made it easier. <clears throat> but my main website, it'll go right to hypnobirthingandyoga.com. 
And I'm offering yoga, yoga therapy, hypnosis, meditation, hypnobirthing, sacred dance. I will be offering uh, some of the sacred dance at a very inclusive with yoga and other forms of, you know, taking off the mask in September. It's wild women and magic. What? Yeah. Dot com. You can go to the, that website. It's September 17th through 21st. And that's for all women wanting to live more empowered and more authentic. And one of the main organizers, Brenda Bryan, is a coach. And she's also in her crone years and says that it's heartbreaking for her when she sees women in their 20s and 30s who don't realize they can bond with other women and feel that support. So that's the intention of the retreat is to be able to offer that in these four days. And I continue to offer my skills on, well, I've been doing it on Zoom. I'm not sure if I'm fully ready to go back in the studio or privates in person, but it's really been working amazingly well on Zoom. And what I've even noticed with some of my hypnobirthing clients, you know, I like to bring in the metaphor of sexuality and making love and saying, you know, that's what got the baby there. That energy will help get the baby out. And one of my hypnobirthing colleagues said, well, you know, you're old enough to talk to people about sex. They'll think, you know, you're, you're like their mother. It's okay. So I want people to just feel an openness. And I felt that some people opened up even a little more when they're on Zoom rather than when I did it in person. But, you know, even that will open up again soon. And I just love being able to be there for women, for couples, for men with hypnosis or yoga, yoga therapy, like what is individual for you? What would you like to grow into that you feel you have that capacity, but you'd need a little extra support to get there? Mm. Thank you so much. The conference in September, is that going to be in person or online? That is absolutely in person. It's called Taking Off the Mask. It will be at Camp Burton on Vashon Island. 